Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Pianist Lara Downs is a visionary artist. Her work goes beyond the keyboard, too, as an advocate and NPR commentator. She wants us to open our ears to a tradition far deeper and broader than most of us knew. Later this hour, Lara Downs will tell us about her Rising Sun project of new recordings by Black composers. First, Renaissance Italy in West Midtown. Mention the name Michelangelo and images of some of the most magnificent artworks ever created come to mind. His statue of David in the city of Florence and frescoes Michelangelo painted for the Sistine Chapel in Rome. Now you can experience some of the Sistine Chapel in Atlanta by way of an immersive up-close exhibition on view at the West Side Cultural Arts Center. Dr. James Chapius is the owner and founder of the Arts Center. He's with us now via Zoom. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you, Lois. It's a pleasure to be here. Please tell us about the West Side Cultural Arts Center, where it's located, and what arts experiences are available. Well, thank you. It's located in Westside Atlanta on 10th Street, 760 10th Street on the corner of Brady and 10th. It was opened in 2014 and it was opened really as a way to, to give back to the community and bring arts more street level to the community and also a focus of allowing a lot of emerging artists to be able to show their work. Now, over the years, we've evolved into sort of an interactive and engaging modern space. We hosted Nike for the Super Bowl in 2019 and uh, were home to the Studio of Dreams that, that they put together. And so we've evolved and now very honored to have the Sistine Chapel exhibit. My goodness, I couldn't imagine one ever experiencing the Sistine Chapel without visiting Italy. This 
is quite an extraordinary opportunity. Tell us why, if you would, the Westside Cultural Arts Center is great for viewing this exhibition. Well, first of all, it was the brainchild of Martin Bayless, producer from special entertainment events out of LA. And apparently during his visit to the Sistine Chapel, he was rushed through, his neck hurt from trying to look up and see the images. And so he thought about a way to reproduce these life-size and then put together an exhibition. Well, we were fortunate enough, he looked at our venue and he started talking with us in mid-2019. He liked our space, he liked our location, and he liked Joe Barrera, our uh, director of operations. And so we developed a relationship and he chose us to show this. One of the reasons we have 20,000 square feet on the second floor, sort of an open kind of venue. So he felt like that would really work well and all of the 34 pieces that we have are life-size or on the ceilings or on the walls. So I think he felt the location and the venue would suit well for his exhibition. How did the tour come to your attention? Actually, he contacted Joe, our director of operations, heard, I guess was online, saw our venue, liked it, and uh, wanted to come and visit. When he visited and met Joe and myself, I guess he liked our venue and I guess he liked us. <laughs> he decided he wanted to work with us. In Vatican City, you mentioned how people are rushed through and, and crowded. This is pre-pandemic, of course. Crowded into a space for a short time and much of the time visitors are looking up at the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. How does having the art at the Westside Cultural Arts Center, having these reproductions at eye level give a different perspective? Well, that's a good question. I've never been to the Sistine Chapel yet. So as a first time viewer, uh, when I went through the exhibition, I, I was so excited because there, the reproductions are just amazing. They are at eye level. And then each of the 34 pieces has multilingual wall text and audio guides. So not only are you seeing these up close and impersonal, but you get a history lesson along the way, which I found very exciting. The other thing that's nice is uh, people are able to take pictures. And so a number of uh, the visitors are taking pictures of themselves and taking pictures of the art. So I think that adds another interesting dimension. I mean, the vivid reproductions are just amazing. When you speak about reproductions, we're talking photographs? Yes, they're, they're photographs. And then they've been reproduced and placed onto canvas. But it started with the photographs and then they were, the computer we was used to update all the fine details. So when you say life-size, can you describe the creation of Adam, the famous God reaching his hand and Adam touching? It's, it's huge. It's 14 by 12 feet. Again, uh, actual reproduction, seeing it up front in personal, right? right before your eyes is, is 
was breathtaking for me. And the final judgment is the only one that's about quarter size because the original, I believe, was 40 foot by 41 foot. So as soon as you walk into the exhibition to your left is the final judgment. And even at a quarter size reproduction, which that's the only one that was, re was reduced in size, it's just amazing to see the detail. You are a medical doctor. Yes. Please tell us about the safety precautions the center is taking so patrons can safely view this art. That's an excellent question. Yes, being a practicing physician and surgeon, we're extremely interested to make sure that's done. So masks are required. As I mentioned earlier, this is in 20,000 square feet. So we were practicing social distancing. We're heavily sanitizing all major touch points and surfaces. And I think when you see the size of the space in the venue, it really lends itself well to social distancing. So I think that we've, so far, we've really been able to follow all these guidelines. Of course, also the ones put in place by the city of Atlanta, which is pretty much what we're talking about here. So that's, that's what we've been doing. The Art Center supports a rotating collection of art and performances. What are some events you have lined up for the near future? Well, we'd first like to mention Terminus Modern Ballet. Yes. We are the home of their studio and school, and we're so proud to have them. They've been with us since the inception of their group. They put on a number of events at our venue, along with Serenby and also at Kennesaw State. So just to have them present is just so exciting. John Welker is just such an incredible person, and just it just brings so much uh, creative life to our space. We have a very exciting venue that we've just about finalized. Uh, we can't really mention the name of it yet, but it'll be the first showing in North America of this exhibit, which will open Labor Day weekend. And we'll be announcing that in April, but it's gonna be an extremely exciting uh, event and um, venue. And again, first showing in North America, again, thanks to our new friend now, Martin Bayless, he's brought that to us. So that will be announced uh, in April. Stepping back a moment, how does this Sistine Chapel exhibition fit into your vision for Westside Cultural Arts Center? When I envisioned the building and what I wanted to do, I don't know that I had a particular plan, but I wanted to make sure that we were able to take the arts to the community, to bring arts of various different sorts to Atlanta. And so I, to me, to have this, and now we're reaching out to various inner city schools to bring children to see this. We're, we're reaching out to retirement homes and bringing, you know, retirees in. It's just amazing. It gives me goosebumps because this is exactly what I hoped we could accomplish for the community with Westside Cultural Arts Center. When did you realize the importance of cultural development for Atlanta's West Side? Well, you know, I was always a fan of the arts and I spent a lot of time at the High Museum and I always liked uh, what was shown. But what I felt Atlanta 
maybe could have used more uh, would be a space that didn't have corporate boards that would give the artists a little bit more of a, a free voice as to what they could show and uh, what we could exhibit. And I felt like Westside with what was happening there would be the perfect uh, venue for this. And of course the building itself is an old building that we renovated. So it still has a very interesting sense of place. And sometimes in Atlanta, I, I think we lose the sense of place. We tear down old buildings and build new ones. And in this case, I didn't want that to be the case. I wanted us to have an older building that had a history of Westside, but then was updated to a new modern space that could now express different views of the arts. And uh, I, I feel like we're accomplishing that. And I think with the Sistine Chapel exhibit, it's turning us in Atlanta into a world-renowned venue that's only going to continue to improve. Dr. James Chapius is the owner and founder of the Westside Cultural Arts Center, where the exhibition Michelangelo's Sistine Chapel will be on view through May 23rd. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. Pianist Laura Downs is a visionary artist, eloquent with words as well as music. She's worked to provide context for our experience of music with her new record label, Rising Sun. Laura Downs wants to open our ears to a tradition that is deeper and broader than most of us knew. She joins us now via Zoom. Laura, welcome back to City Lights. Thank you so much. Good morning. The Rising Sun label features works of Black composers spanning the last 200 years, many of whom have been overlooked in mainstream classical music. How did you decide which composers to include? Well, that's a process and it's an ongoing process. And um, if, I, if I showed you my spreadsheet and how quickly it's growing, you would be shocked. So, um, you know, that's kind of why I decided to format this the way I have. We're not putting out sort of finished albums. It's an ongoing stream every month because I'm learning more all the time and discovering more all the time. And I want to be able to, uh, you know, bring everybody along with me on this journey. It's really an astounding revelation. You have been described as having boundless energy. 
And a deadly pandemic hasn't curtailed your activity. In 2020, you launched a video series, Amplify, featuring conversations with Black composers and artists. Many of those conversations centered around the artists reflecting on this past year's challenges and experiences. Has the pandemic played a role in your decision to launch Rising Sun? It has. This has been a year of so much change. And the conversations on Amplify, my experiences, my just reality every day of this year, yes, loss, yes, fear, yes, you know, change on every level, but also opportunity to do better, to, you know, kind of speak and share ideas. And I think that's really driven me because I, I just have this awareness in a very immediate way, a very present and current way that, you know, everything that's happening now has meaning. I've been doing this work this research and this, you know, kind of excavation of the music of Black composers for many years now, really about 15 years. And I think I perceived that in one way. You know, I perceive this as as part of a bigger story or a bigger quest, you know, that really just had to do with American music and identity, both personal and collective and, and all of these things that I've spoken about and, you know, kind of um, expressed through my projects. But I think this year, there are conversations happening among people and this awareness, this truth, I guess, that I've begun to know about Black music and where it sits and what it has to teach us. Just It just felt very urgent to create kind of a central hub for it and let it be its own thing now. Hmm. I thought about the artist David Driscoll, the artist, academic, curator, who was considered so revolutionary when he curated a show for the Los Angeles County Museum of Art in 1976, two centuries of African-American art. No one was aware of the extent of African-American art going back two centuries. And I thought of him when I first learned about Rising Sun. And I wondered how similar it is because visual art can be self-taught. It's more difficult with music, at least music that would have survived in notated form. Many of the black composers whose works we know from the 18th or early 19th century were European. Are there any notated African-American works of music? Yes, and everything you just said so exactly captures my my feeling in this moment. For one thing, when I look at what David Driscoll did in 1976, I cannot believe that he pulled it off and that he had the, you know, when you think about the resources that are available to me now in terms of digital presence and, you know, the kind of archiving of materials, it's just, it's just mind 
boggling to me that that was even possible. And it's, it's so astonishing. Um, yes, to answer your question, there are, uh, one of the things I I've discovered, there's a group of freeborn Creole composers of color in New Orleans writing concert music, uh, before the civil war, you bump up against all of these groups, all these moments, all of these collectives, all these communities, and you realize that the, the existence of this piece of music, of this notated piece of music, you know, tells me so much more. It's so interesting to be doing this research in the age of the internet, because of course, every discovery sends you down a rabbit hole. And before you know it, you know, you're looking at some poetry journal from the same time and realizing, you know, the impact, the, the implications that you've just stumbled upon. So I think, you know, you just hit it. It's, this is, this is what's so important for me about telling this story. It's not, it's not the story that we know about that William Grant still was the first to do fill in the blank or that Florence Price was the first to do fill in the blank. It's that all of these stories, all these people, all of their work, it's all connected and it's all connected by this vibrant tradition that was passed down, that continues to be passed down and has somehow escaped our attention all of these years. Growing up, you always wanted to be a pianist, but I read that at one point you thought of becoming an archeologist. Sigmund Freud had a lifelong interest in archaeology, Lara. Why does archaeology appeal to you? You know, I can't quite remember the feeling when I was a kid. I was really little. Well, I was I was really interested in um, Greek and Roman mythology when I was very little. And I think it was just this, this awareness of other civilizations, completely different ways of living on this planet, different belief systems, different utensils, everything, you know, that there were things to be found. I gave up on the idea of archaeology as a profession when I realized that it was very methodical and slow and oftentimes <laughs> you didn't find anything so this this works better for me but yeah I see that can't you see that in you know the way that Freud ended up living his life and doing his work I think it's this it's this desire to find what's not right in front of you and you know as a pianist as a little piano student there's so much that is right in front of you you know there's all these Beethoven sonatas lined up in front of you all these Chopin lined up in front of you um it's really clear what your life's work is expected to be. So I don't know, I'm slightly subversive. I wanted to find out what might be underneath that neatly laid out surface. Oh, I think it's great. Would you tell us where and how these recordings were made? <laughs> I will tell you if you promise not to tell anyone else. <laughs> 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 it's a pandemic. They're being made at home. They're being made at home. They're being made with a lot of creativity. We are doing some remote recordings. I mean, it is staggering to me. So everybody involved, we're all really good musicians. And it is, that's that's another truth that's emerging from this year. You know, you can do your work really well, despite some pretty monumental challenges. So there's some chamber music pieces that we've recorded, some vocal and piano pieces we've recorded, and we've had to do them remotely. And, you know, with a lot of rehearsal and a lot of conversation and a lot of understanding and feeling and intuition, the outcome is beautiful. I'm bizarrely fortunate to have a wonderful piano in my home and a beautiful acoustic in my living room and um, a brilliant producer. But yes, these, I mean, I think, you know, that's the other thing, looking back years from now to remember that these recordings were 
created in this space of isolation and the kind of effort, you know, that work is requiring right now, I think will be something meaningful. Oh, yes. And we got to see your beautiful white grand piano. (laughs) Yeah, it's my baby. I was very surprised. Why not the traditional ebony? You know, it was by chance, and it's not something that I sort of would have thought of beforehand, but I'm in love with this piano, and it has seen me through this year, and, you know, it will be my forever companion. And I don't know, I guess it's become a little bit of my trademark because I'm, you know, popping up all over the place with my, in my my living room on camera, but it's, uh, yeah, one of those, you know, chance, chance meetings that just worked out right. Your website says these recordings will radically redefine the history of classical music by embracing the true diversity of its origins and expanding the inclusivity of its future. No doubt classical music history has many hidden figures. What are some of our greatest blind spots that Rising Sun hopes to illuminate? You know, it it brings me back to what you said about David Driscoll. I just watched the documentary about his work and, you know, just struck me that when that exhibit opened, the museum had never seen anything like the lines around the block to see that show. And I think that this all comes down to who decides, who, who decides how history gets written, who decides who gets remembered. I think that's what we're pulling apart right now. And I think that people who are hearing these recordings are recognizing that we all have to take part in documenting our existence and you know the world that we live in and, and not let our history be written by anybody else. I'm hearing from listeners, oh my goodness, I just the, the outpouring of thanks and joy every single day through this little form on the project website. It is incredible to me. And hearing from people all around the country who are saying, you know, I've been, I've been doing this research for a long time. I want to share my resources with you because I think there are so many of us who have been wanting to know this truth. You know, if these recordings are having some part in bringing it to light, I'm just so happy. The music is accompanied by your commentary, and this goes back to the introduction about how you have always wanted and worked to provide context for either concert goers or your listeners. The commentary offers wonderful background and interpretation on the works and their sources. And again, I'm reminded of how marvelous to live in this digital age that you can do that, because if one could not hear you live in recital, these commentaries, the research you've done, really would have been confined to print and most Mm -hmm. likely in a library. Mm -hmm. 
Yes, there's some wonderful things about this time we're living in. And I think also the experience of being locked in my house for a year with, you know, just me and my white piano and my camera and my mic, it's really allowed me to reimagine my community and to recognize the importance of, yes, speaking a few words about these pieces of music and giving those words to, you know, everyone who comes across these recordings. Communication is so possible. And I think we've learned how very necessary it is, too. Yeah. The track from the March collection, What Lips My Lips Have Kissed by Margaret Bonds features lyrics, a poem you read by Edna St. Vincent Millay, sung by the magnificent soprano Nicole Cogbell. That is a luminous recording. Would you tell us a bit about the history of that work and just how you and Nicole Cabell came to collaborate on this performance? Mm-hmm. First of all, I just wanted to say thank you for saying the title of the, of the song because I have this little lisp and it's literally the hardest phrase in the English language for me to say. So I appreciate oh. you. But your list, it, it's charming. It's just who you are. Um, Nicole and I had never met before. And, you know, again, just one of the blessings of this year has been to reach out to artists I admire and kind of feel kinship with. So we just dove into the song. The song is a new discovery. A colleague of mine, Michael Cooper, has been researching Margaret Bond's music. And it's now just all being published by Hildegard press so it's it's so fantastic that our recording is also just kind of getting the the song out into the world so that others can perform it what lips my lips have kissed and where and why i have forgotten and what arms have made under my hand till morning but the Tonight, that tap and sigh upon the glass and listen for reply. And in my heart, there stirs a quiet pain. It's such an interesting song. It's, it's you know, these two very powerful women, Margaret Bonds with the, their, the text by and the St. Vincent Millay. And it's, I don't know, there, there are a lot of interesting things about it. The way that Bonds treats those words, which are complicated words. It's such a, you know, the, the message of that poem is so sort of conflicted and complex. And she bends every phrase to kind of accommodate that complexity, I think. Nicole and I spent a good bit of time pondering. And then the recording itself happened quickly. And Ah, she does such a beautiful job. It's so true. And, you know, she she did something that I really love, which is not to sing this as like an art song, you know, it's, it's, it has no artifice. It's really just so expressive of, of what's there and direct. Yeah. yeah. Why was it important for you to release this collection during Women's History Month? Oh, well, because, you know, you asked a minute ago about all of the overlooked figures. And I think 
you know, black women composers kind of have all the strikes against them. And it's just, <laughs> right? It's just amazing and humbling to me to look at the work of these women, Florence Price, Margaret Bonds, Hazel Scott, the amazing Hazel Scott, Nora Douglas Holt, a name that most people don't know who, who live this outsized life, you know, at the determination, but, and, and I don't mean that in, in the sense of like struggle or, um, you know, ambition. I mean, this inner spark, this inner fire that makes you do things that are not even possible, you know, to just have that kind of creativity in you. I, I look at that and I am so grateful because I feel like it's, you know, that's my ancestry. That's even when we don't know about these women, they were there, you know, and what they did makes it possible for us to do what we do. Let's end with peace of mind. What should everyone know about Hazel Scott? I think that if you have come across Hazel Scott, you've maybe seen the YouTube video where she's playing two pianos at the same time. You've maybe seen clips where she's, I mean, she's, you know, you, you might, you probably know her as an entertainer and she was that, but she was also a creator and a deeply committed activist and a person who lived by her ideals and um, really never faltered. She was trained as a classical pianist. That was her ambition. And in her time and place, that wasn't possible. And so she, you know, sort of moved into the jazz world, but she was really well known for these mashups that she would do of classical and jazz songs. And um, she just, you know, she broke all kinds of barriers. She was the first black American to have her own TV show. She was a leading lady for the MGM studios. Her career fell apart in the fifties. She was blacklisted and she ended up moving to Europe and, and things were never really the same after that. But I love finding, you know, there are a few pieces of music that she wrote herself. And I just feel that they're so personal and they really express, you know, what was underneath that surface. And I want to tell you something that I just discovered this song, Peace of Mind, which was transcribed for me, note for note from her recording in 1955. It's very intimate. I think it expresses something pure and authentic and uniquely herself. And I was reading the other day about her testimony for the House Un-American um, Activities Committee in 1950. And she makes reference to the peace of mind of the American people and how it mustn't be threatened by this kind of corruption. And just reading that, you know, she used those words in that context. I don't know exactly what the connection is between that statement and this piece of music, but it gave me something to, to believe in. the acclaimed pianist Lara Downs. You can hear the tracks from her new recording label, Rising Sun Music, on Spotify. More information will be on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. 
This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. For Women's History Month, we turn now to a book about Noor Jahan, Empress. The astonishing reign of Noor Jahan tells the story of the only woman in Indian history ever to ascend to the title of Empress, ruler of the vast Mughal Empire in the 17th century. Noor Jahan was also an architect and a mighty hunter. Emory Professor of History and South Asian Studies, Ruby Lal is the author of Empress. She won the Georgia Author of the Year Award in 2019 for Best Biography, and the book has since garnered international acclaim. When I spoke with Dr. Lal about Empress in 2018, she first explained how Noor Jahan came to slay a tiger. Well, hunting is one of the critical forms of evidence that I use in this book. Hunting uh, was for pleasure. Hunting also meant many other things for royalty at this point. It was one of the critical symbols of being a sovereign. In other words, kings or uh, uh, sovereigns or empresses who hunted meant technically that they were protectors, that they were sovereigns. Everybody couldn't Uh, you know, just go and hunt and, you know, gather the hunt or, uh, you know, have feasts out of that. So in other words, there were were rights uh, of kingship that were attached to hunting. But while they were on the hunt, they also took statistics of the empire. They got to know the subjects. The subjects got to know them. Uh, They were visually there for for the, uh, you know, empire, for the population to see. So there were many things that was going on in this Uh, you know, one act of shooting apart from the fact that you were protecting your subjects. And Noor? And Noor is, of course, astonishing. Another thing that we should remember is that women of aristocratic background or of royalty knew how to hunt, but she came out visibly hunting. The instance that we are discussing is the one from 1626 uh, when they are on the way uh, from Agra to Kashmir, their first trip together. And, uh, you know, near uh, on the outskirts of Agra, which is the capital at this time, uh, is a lovely place called Mathura, which is traditionally the land of the playful god Krishna. Uh, and while they're uh, on the outskirts, the emperor gets to hear that uh, um, there's been Uh, this crazy tiger that's been roving the streets and harassing peasants and passers-by. And so they request him to do something about this. Um, And having just passed his milestone birthday, he's not, which is 50, he had vowed that he would give up hunting with his own hands. So he's unable to do. Uh, And therefore the empress comes in. And of course, by this time, she's already had a record uh, of uh, fantastic hunting feats that that are... being acknowledged that have been recorded, uh, you know, for posterity and for scholars like me. And Uh, we're not talking about a rabbit. We are not talking about a rabbit. We are talking about killer tigers. Uh, And this is not the first time she does it. According to the memoirs of the emperor, the best marksman of the empire had failed to do what she did. So just imagine her perched on an elephant 
in a in a howdah or the or the seat, the imperial seat, the carriage, uh, and trying to take a shot from that. Uh, and I, I I said the scene in the book in which um, I take the evidence from the emperor's memoir, saying uh, how it uh, precariously perched, how the the entire seat you know went left and right, hither and thither, as she as she took a shot, and then she did between and the eyes between the eyes <laughs> bagged that tiger. This book is dedicated to your mother, who nurtured a love for stories among you and your sisters. When did you first meet Noor Jahan? I've talked to my mother about this. I was a little girl, possibly between eight and nine is the time, and that's my recollection. But where my memory is not tricky, is in savoring those moments of storytelling with her, late afternoon after late afternoon, when she told me about any number of uh, stories from India, you know, great uh, queens, great uh, heroines of epics. Uh, but she hadn't told me about Noor Jahan. And uh, this one uh, incredible afternoon, we were playing on the floor a game like the American Jacks. And I recall getting really very impatient is the word. And, I, um, and again, I recall saying to her, you know, I want another story. So whatever it was that she was telling me, I can't re you know, remember whether she finished it or not, but she, she told me this no new story about Noor Jahan. Um, and I absolutely fell in love. Uh, I was besotted. Uh, and when she finished... Um, I looked up to my father, who was always behind his newspapers, stare, you know. But of course, eavesdropping <laughs> at <laughs> our mother-daughter transaction. And I said to him, Papa, I am Noor Jahan, and you are Jahangir. And he, of course, you know, laughed and, and, and repeated the story to many people. But I think there was an imprint uh, that stayed. And so at that tender age, what was it? that resonated so deeply with you? I think it was a combination that I hadn't heard before, which is that she was a poet, that she was brave, that she, uh, you know, designed clothing, that she was magical, and the fact that my mother called her Maharani in Hindi, which means queens of queens. So I knew about queens. <laughs> I knew about empresses. But queens of queens, what might that be? Was 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 really, I think um, I think that would tickle any girl, and it certainly tickled me. There are many princess stories that you know we all know about a beautiful princess and a prince meet. But and this this was a real life. This was a sovereign. Real, this was a real life sovereign, and I think the extraordinary thing is, and, and this is the task I set out to do as, as, as an historian, which is the legends really soak her uh, in the popular imagination in South Asia. And they soak her in that love uh, encapsulates everything around her, how she meets the Emperor Jahangir, who's the, who's the fourth great Mughal of India, and the renditions are thousands they met before, they met after she was married, they met when they were really young and then they parted. And there's, of course, a very beautiful story um, that goes around about two pigeons, which is that they both meet in their youth 
and uh, you know he's holding these really gorgeous two pigeons uh, and she passes by and he looks at her and he says to her well would you mind holding these pigeons for me while I go and do x y and z and uh, she holds the two pigeons when he comes back um, he sees that one of the pigeons is not in her hand so he says to her where is that pigeon and she says well it's flown away and he says how did that happen so she quickly releases the second pigeon and says this is how it happens <laughs> and you know he's bowled over of course by her cleverness and her charm and whatever so that that kind of tale and there are many there are you know versions upon versions of this kind of tale but that's the kind of tale that locked her i mean in a, in the in the sense of love locking her so you wanted to write about the extent of her accomplishments i think uh, the point is this uh, lois that 1611 uh, which is recorded history when they marry every history every film theater piece fictional accounts stop at that point uh, and my research showed that 1611 on is when her best work begins um and by best work let's be clear it's absolutely astonishing work which is that she is the only woman sovereign among the great moguls of india and that's a story we 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 never heard before let's talk about the period during which nur jahan lived it was something of a golden age for india what was the mughal empire the mughal empire was this extraordinary set of experiments let's 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 put it this way so let me just say a few things about who the mughals were and then talk about this wider landscape that you've so uh, accurately picked up uh the mughals um started moving to india from the 1520s they were descendants of timur and chenghis khan and there were various uh you know lines and kinship very complicated kinship relations uh and essentially there was a lot of factional fighting amongst the various descendants of timur and chenghis khan over time uh and mughals were one branch in babar who's the first great mughal of india he establishes himself in afghanistan and then begins to look towards india so the time we are really talking about is a pre-nation time and we don't have fixed borders we don't have fixed territories people move quite a lot um it's the part of life uh let's say it's migration in pre-nation times mm-hmm. and so they establish the empire in india uh, babar and then there is his descendant humayun who is also in and out of india it's akbar the great nur's father-in-law um uh, that is classified or thought by historians rightly as the first great mughal who really establishes himself uh in india in fact interestingly after akbar each of the great mughals have hindu mothers because akbar marries intermarries with a lot of local hindu families so these are sunni muslim kings who have hindu wives in the harem there are also shia connections shia muslim connections akbar the great is really interested in having very deep philosophical questions about what life is how to live how to be so he talks to he has thursday meetings with uh, zoroastrians with jews with buddhists with christians 
with Hindus. So he's very, very experimental. It's also very, as I say, non-border time, non-categorizations. But a very ecumenical Very outlook. ecumenical approach, which doesn't mean that it's minus the extremities of, you know, kings slaughtering, having war, having difficulties. In fact, Akbar the Great, ironically, and this is something I chart in my first book, he's the man who, for the first time, gets women away from their nomadic, uh, and I mean Mughal royal, nomadic, peripatetic, very open tent life, to the first imperial harem that he builds uh, in Fatehpur Sikri. And his son, Jahangir, who's the who's the next and the fourth great Mughal, uh, he actually retaliates against his father in some ways in that, uh, and particularly, and this is critical to the emergence of Nur Jahan, in that he doesn't want to be homebound. He's always on the road. He really ad- admires his great-grandfather, Babur. Um, and so one of the things I did in my book is to chart his life of movement and engagement uh, and from 1613 on till he dies in 1627, Noor is with him in practically every journey. And, uh, uh, you know, my the, the evidence shows, but also my belief is that it's being on the road that leads to co-sovereignty. And also, I think it's, it's this extraordinary woman. And not only uh, that movement being on the road leading to co-sovereignty, but to being more open-minded, to being more accepting, or at least curious enough to look at new ideas. So you describe beautifully this um, roving empire, what, uh, the camp of great fortune. Mm-hmm. It's okay. For the record, never got camping. <laughs> never, ever got, you know, if we were meant to sleep outside, we wouldn't have beds. But <laughs> your description of this camp was right. something else. Would you like to read a little bit? Sure. As in the permanent palaces of Agra and Lahore, the main entrance was the Nakar Khana, the drum room, where the arrivals and departures of important people were announced by the beating of drums. To the left of the entrance stood the imperial stables with open-air enclosures for the horses and elephants and tents for the supervisors and staff and for saddles and other tack. To the right of the drum room was the imperial office, the daftar, whose officers managed accounts and detailed revenue matters, daily expenses and pay. Next to the daftar were tents for palanquins and carts for heavy artillery and hunting leopards. Visitors passed through the drum room into the great camp light, a corridor filled with lamps, and from there to the hall of public audience, where Jahangir handled routine matters of government, granting promotions, for example, and awarding ceremonial robes and gifts. Behind it was the hall of special audience, where the emperor dealt with confidential affairs of the state, drafted edicts by his own hand, and met with the great nobles. Both audience halls were canopied spaces, furnished with red and gold tapestries and rich rugs. Jahangir's traveling hall of private audience was similar to that of his father, described in the Akbarnama, which contained 72 rooms, decorated with 1,000 carpets, 
and had proper doors with locks. The structure, wa the structure was helped up by ropes that stretched 350 yards and were fastened to poles set by three yards apart. Okay, 72 rooms, <laughs> all respect to REI and Dick's. <laughs> We do not have tents like this nowadays. No. And you go on to write that that camp of good fortune probably held 300,000 people. That's right. That's according to one estimate, which actually varies between 50,000 to, to 300,000. Nevertheless, we are, we are talking about a caravan of people and animals decked out in precious stones and pearls. It's really quite remarkable that this didn't inspire a revolution. I mean, I used to think those picnics they had at Versailles, you know, oh, I got right. with the China and the, okay, that's why the French revolted. This is astonishing in and of itself. That's amazing. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Ruby Lal is professor of history and South Asian studies at Emory University. Her book is Empress, the Astonishing Reign of Noor Jahan. You've been listening to City Lights, WABE's daily exploration of arts and culture. City Lights producer is Summer Evans. Shelley Canavy is our engineer, and I'm Lois Reitzes. I would love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. You can also find our archived stories at wabe.org slash citylights. Thank you for listening to WABE. Atlanta's Choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org donate. And thanks.